you're there, you're having a baby. Many people are very private. It's a private moment. And all of a sudden there's 15,000 people in your room and you're like, what's going on? Why are 8,000 people checking me? They aren't my doctor. Like, why are people watching me push a baby? I can feel very intrusive. I, and we're not trying to be, but I think, you know, communicating expectations and also what happens and why it's to your benefit is really important. Giving birth is one of the most significant events of your life. Sadly, the joy that you should feel can often be replaced with anxiety and helplessness instead. As a labor and delivery nurse, I'm revealing insider information to educate you, reassure you, and decrease your fear. In this podcast, you'll hear empowering birth stories and experts weigh in on a range of topics. Being Jewish also has me exploring Judaism's influence on the reproductive experience. However, I speak to anyone wishing to navigate their journey with more joy and confidence. I'm your host, Hani Fingerer, and you're listening to the Happy Birthway Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Happy Birthway Podcast. Today, I'm interviewing guest Dr. Tirza Spiegel-Strauss. She was an Ann Scheiber Scholar at the S. Daniel Abraham Honors Program in Stern College for Women, where she graduated summa cum laude, and at Albert Einstein College of Medicine. Tirza completed her obstetrics and gynecology residency at Northwell Health, North Shore LIJ, where she was the academic chief resident and was awarded for excellence in obstetrics. After graduating, Tirza joined the faculty at Wayne State University Harper Hutzel Hospital in Detroit, where she was a clinical assistant professor of obstetrics and gynecology. Tirza is currently in her maternal fetal medicine fellowship at Mount Sinai West. Tirza's research interests include prenatal genetics, maternal and fetal renal disease, critical care in pregnancy, and expanding the use of ultrasound on labor and delivery. Thank you so much for taking out the time out of your incredibly busy schedule. Thank you so much for inviting me, honey. It's so lovely to be here. So I introduced you as a fellow in high-risk obstetrics. Can you please explain to our audience exactly what that is and the journey that it took you to get here? I'd love to. So, you know, maternal fetal medicine or high-risk obstetrics um, basically means that there's some sort of um, issue that is a little bit unusual in your pregnancy. You know, it can be related to the mother, it can be related to the baby, it can be related to the placenta, or really anything else. From a maternal standpoint, we've reached really an age in medicine where many women have certain medical conditions where maybe they would not have either survived till childbearing age or been able to reproduce and like they've reached a point where this is possible. So we have many more women who are sicker who are getting pregnant and we also have many more women who are older who are getting pregnant um, from, you know, a baby standpoint, with the advent of ultrasound, we are able to detect many more um, conditions earlier. And so we can follow those and help take care of babies as well. Um, and in addition to placenta or um, special conditions that may affect a woman in pregnancy, but may be reflective actually of health af- either before, during, or even after pregnancy for both mom and baby. It's interesting how you brought up the fact that there are more older women now getting pregnant and we're using a lot more um, assistive reproductive technology to help those who cannot get pregnant get pregnant. And we have a better ability to treat sick 
people in general today than we did 20, 30 years ago. For example, to me, what I found interesting is congenital heart anomalies, right? Congenital heart diseases. Um, Just about 20, 30 years ago was when really we got a good handle of treating babies who were born with congenital heart defects. Now this generation is the first generation to start having babies, right? And we don't necessarily know um, all of the information that we may need on what toll that takes on their bodies and how uh, we need to treat that. So these are all new medical challenges that we have in this like new frontier. And as a maternal fetal medicine doctor, right? Because that's going to be your title. That's the fellowship that you're in now. Yes. In maternal fetal medicine, I've heard it said before that some maternal fetal medicine doctors like to gravitate toward the maternal side of things and some like to gravitate toward treating the fetal side um, of a high-risk pregnancy. What would you say about that? So I, I think it's really interesting. I think, you know, with the advent of specialization in medicine, you know, being in a very big city, the more you do something, the more you're familiar with them, the more you become an expert. So I think, you know, in high volume cities, um, I'm currently training in New York City, I think people tend to gravitate and specialize um, just because of the sheer volume of patients and providers available. Um, But that may not be the case in smaller cities. Um, That being said, the basic training for all maternal fetal medicine um, specialists encompasses most basic conditions. Even if you're more interested in maternal or fetal, you can still take care of the other as well. Yeah, that's that's an interesting point about depends on the volume of um, patients that you're treating. That makes a lot of sense. And like you said, like CHOP is one of the first hospitals that comes to mind where they have all this cutting edge um, technology for fetal conditions and they've even done intrauterine surgery on fetuses. So that would make sense that someone who were a maternal fetal medicine doctor at CHOP, they would probably specialize more on the fetal part being that it's a children's hospital. I was actually shocked when I went for my fellowship interview um, at the University of Colorado. Um, they do a lot of fetal surgery there. And I had asked a question and I was like, oh, so as a fellow, do you get to do these surgeries? And the, somebody laughed at me and was like, no, that's another fellowship after that. Um, oh, so usually for boy. that, and I, was like, and I was like, oh, uh, no more fellowships after this. I always want to learn, but at some point, no more fellowships. <laughs> yes. And you had to do a lot of work already to get to where you are. Can you backtrack, please, and just give us the timeline, starting from high school graduation, what it is that you've had to do and how many years of training you've had to have in order to get to where you are. And you're almost done. You're at the cusp of the finish line, right? Yes. Relatively speaking, yes. So, I mean, you're doing incredible work already. It's not like you're not a doctor, but, you know, you're attaining that goal that you have to attain that high risk um, OBGYN maternal fetal medicine doctor goal. Can you just backtrack and let us know from the start after you graduated high school, what did you have to do to get to where you are? 
Absolutely. So, you know, as a, as a young child, I had, um, I had very bad allergies and, you know, I think now we're all very allergy conscious, but it conscious, but in the nineties, you know, nobody really understood what was going on. I saw a lot of allergists as a kid. Um, and it was something, I don't know, that stuck out to me, the compassionate way the doctors related to you, explained to you what was going on. It was something different that happens to you. And you're like, why is this happening? So that always provoked kind of the thinking of the biological mechanisms. Um, and it always, really made me quite fascinated in the body and what happens. Um, so I was always interested in science, probably very nerdy, like very nerdy, let's not say probably. Um, and so I thought maybe I want to be a doctor and um, not many women in my community became physicians afterwards, but I have heard like an inkling from somebody like, I don't know, one pace up that there was this, that like, you know, like there's Stern College and there's this scholarship for women that do science, that study sciences. And afterwards there's a scholarship. If you go to Einstein, I was like, Hmm, sounds like fun to like go to college in New York. Why not just apply? And I applied and I got in and like, it's, it was such, such good luck. Um, and I was so lucky and I was really afforded wonderful guidance and mentorship in Stern and really like all my bio classes, all the classes I took there in the honors program really propelled me along this path. And I would say one of the big things, um, was my first, you know, one of the things they tell you at these pre-med meetings when you're there in your first year and all these people want to be doctors and you're like, how am I going to do it? Like, I'm not good enough. And they're like, you need to do this research. And I was like, what is research? I've never done this before. What if I'm bad at it? What if I hate it? And, you know, fortuitously, um, my grandmother had, um, knew a woman who was a breast oncologist in Toronto and worked with the firm community. And I was extremely lucky to be taken under her wings for mentorship. Her name is Dr. Ellen Warner, um, and she's a breast oncologist in Toronto who has a lot of interest in the Jewish community, young women with breast cancer and uh, BRCA and preventative um, oncology. Um, and I just, it was so amazing to work with her, to see what she does, to see how she talks to patients, the importance of preventative health and genetics and medicine. And I think that inspired me in kind of propelling my career path and really everything I do. And so, you know, after that, I did four years in Stern. I majored in molecular and cellular biology. I um, was very lucky to have other wonderful uh, female mentors there, um, incredible teachers um, and researchers. I was able to work in a lab there um, where I looked at a specific pathway um, on a cell level um, that multiplies quickly with estrogen and helps us to explain why breast cancers can sometimes be resistant to chemotherapy and you need hormone therapy as well. Um, and I thought that was like a really interesting kind of putting both the, bringing the bench to the table. Um, and I was lucky to work with a woman named Dr. Marina Holtz, who really um, inspired me to think. And, you know, I, I remember learning about microarray in college and her saying like, this is the wave of the future. And, you know, I was like, ever I thought like, ha 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 ha, every teacher like, you know, thinks it's so important. And like, I still hear in my, hear her in my head 10 years later, this is the wave of the future. And she was right. Um, you know, I was so blessed to go to Einstein. And, you know, at this point I was like, oh, I'm going to be a breast oncologist. This is what I really want to do. Um, you know, like this is amazing, genetics, preventive health. And my first year, I think 
it's been a lot of good luck with mentorship. Um, I worked with a woman named Dr. Mary Rosser. We had this clinical shadowing as first years at Einstein. Um, and I went with her once a week and she was an OBGYN because I was interested in women's health. And, and you know, everybody like sits you down at the Chavez table and tells you why being an OB is bad and there's malpractice and it's a horrible lifestyle. And, and you have to you know, be on call at night. <laughs> you know, the whole nine yards. And she loved her patients. And one of the things she always did was she always talked to her patients about, you know, how women's health was a lifelong health um, endeavor. And, you know, pregnancy is sometimes that time when women go to the doctors more. And she was always very interested in women's heart health. And I remember learning, you know, in Stern, and I always thought cancer killed the most women. And I remember learning, no, it's heart disease. And, you know, the watching the way um, Dr. Rosser kind of, um, and by her passion for women's heart health and taking care of women and women's well-being, it really inspired me. And then I went to my first birth as a first year, and I thought it was crazy. Um, and that's and it. I don't know. It just you were hooked in. I did. I was. You know, I I loved the crazy. I loved it. I usually don't like surprises, but there was something so cool about it. Um, and you know, it was just everything I was looking for OBGYN, you know, you're taking care of women through the milestones of their lives, you're promoting health, you're advocating for them, you get to do really fun things like deliver babies, surgery, and really care for them throughout the life. And then genetics is really it changes all the time. You have to stay on top of it. And it's incredible, like the information that we're learning about ourselves, our past and our future. Um, and so it was really cool. So I decided to pursue OBGYN. Um, you know, as a med student, it's sometimes hard to really see like whether you see yourself doing generalist or specialist. Um, and it's very hard in the surgical specialties to really, because it's hard to participate as a medical student. Um, I always liked genetics. I always liked maternal fetal medicine. Um, but and then I matched for OBGYN at Northwell Health, North Shore LIJ. That was when North Shore LIJ became Northwell and fancy uh, the cats came out um, and the birth rate exploded. I think we were doing almost 10,000 deliveries a year wow. <laughs> at, at LIJ in residency and I think North Shore were almost up to 9,000. Was that because hospitals merged? I don't know if you remember the Super Bowl commercial. I think this was like the first year I was an intern of like Northwell Health and they like showed the first baby of the year and their fancy new cats building. And then I don't know, the patients just kept coming and we kept <laughs> delivering babies and sometimes, and it was, it was a lot of fun. Um, it was a little bit crazy. I definitely learned a lot, but it was a wonderful experience um, in terms of clinical volume, um, acuity, patient experience, and also just, you know, and I, I, I'll keep saying this, I've been blessed with wonderful mentorship. I had the most wonderful mentor who is still a mentor to me, Dr. Wendy Fried there, um, who is the most fabulous um, generalist, but she is like the most fabulous teacher, stays up to date on everything and really inspires me with everything she does. And, you know, wonderful MFM mentorship as well. Um, Dr. Meyerowitz, who is an MFM at um, LIJ, has also been a wonderful mentor in addition to many others in the department. You know, at that point, I was, you know, I, I love general and I was, I was debating between uh, being an academic generalist or maternal fetal medicine. And, you know, um, as a third year resident, I think we did more um, maternal fetal medicine and it was just it was like all the fun parts of OB with additional critical thinking, more time spent with the patient, really close follow-up. And I felt it was it was just really seeing how like modern medicine has taken things to a whole new level. And also I think empowering women to really take control of their health 
um, both in terms of having pre-existing health conditions and also, you know, discovering certain conditions of pregnancy that either may have not been discovered before or may put women at risk in their lifetime, specifically, you know, uh, diabetes of pregnancy or hypertension of pregnancy and kind of really um, sending women up for care for the rest of their lives. Um, and to me, I think that's amazing. Like, that's always what I wanted to do. Yeah, agreed. I think that oftentimes pregnancy may be the first encounter that someone may have with the medical system. If they're a young person that doesn't really have any major health concerns, they may not be seeing a doctor yearly. Like after they finish seeing their pediatrician, they may not have even gone back to a doctor and then they get pregnant and then come to find out they have high blood pressure or they have diabetes and that sends them into a deeper um, investigation of what it truly is. Is it diabetes that just happened during pregnancy or is it pre-existing diabetes, right? The same thing with high blood pressure and other areas. So you're right. And it, it, it can really be their first encounter with the healthcare system. And I think also, you know, pregnancy is a very crucial time where people really deliberate on life choices and just reflect on life because that's like the epitome of adulthood (laughs) where once you have someone that you're responsible for for the rest of your life I think it gives encouragement to it's just a motivator to really take better care of your health because you have to be there for this child to raise this child you have to be healthy to raise this child you have to get through the pregnancy uh, healthy safe and sound what would you what do you think about that I think that's so well said you said it amazingly I think you know women are resilient women are motivated and these are like the reasons that drew me to working with women in the first place I think you know we see a lot of women who really like this is the this is like the big event where they really take their health into their own hands and are inspired and empowered to make these life changes Um, like you said now there's more kind of to look after like being there for your children and you know being in, in being in good health so you can take care of your children and so you can enjoy you know your pregnancy and after pregnancy I think are some of the big motivators um, and sometimes wake-up calls also for health like just learning about this information we see on social media everything that goes right in pregnancy um, and really watching you know a woman who goes from wanting to enjoy her pregnancy and now is taking her finger sticks four times a day finding time to inject insulin five times a day and like watching everything she eats or taking her blood pressure i'm always very impressed by the fortitude and the resilience of the women i see and it inspires me It's just one more thing. If it's not a low risk, straightforward pregnancy, it's just an additional thing that a woman has to give to her child. So you had, you said a great mentor in MFM. And I just want to backtrack a little bit. When you worked in an academic hospital, you said that you were considering either MFM or being an academic generalist. Can you backtrack and explain to us what the difference of just like an OBGYN that sees patients in the office and delivers in the hospital. So, you know, you can, you know, stay up to date on studies and, and be academic as a private practice generalist too, but generally as an academic 
generalist, depending on the hospital you work in, you have additional academic responsibilities with um, research and teaching, teaching medical students, teaching residents. That doesn't mean you can't teach as a private doctor either, but these are specific allotted responsibilities that you have. You know, I always love teaching and I always think that students inspire you to learn more and sometimes you learn more from the students um, and it's always fun to teach and mentor the next generation and I think it's important to pay back, you know, the wonderful mentorship I've been blessed with. Um, so I, and I'm always learning more. I always love to learn. It's always fun to do things. There's so much to learn. So I was considering that as a generalist, you do OB, GYN, and also clinic, um, you know, where you see women throughout the span of their lifetime. So you could see a young pregnant woman, you might see a teenager for her first well woman visit, or you might see someone going through menopause and be putting them on hormone replacement or talking to them about it. So there's a, there's really a lot you can do. I knew after my third year I was hooked. I love obstetrics was it for me and I wanted to do high risk obstetrics. I loved ultrasound. It was like seeing inside. It was so cool. I loved genetics. It was really everything I was looking for. But uh, due to life circumstances, um, I had to be in, in Detroit that year. So I was an academic generalist. And you know what? It was a wonderful year. I loved what I was doing. Uh, it was so fun to teach teach, to um, do OB and to do gynecology. It was an incredible experience and to really be in another institution where, you know, you learn from other people there as well. Um, and then now I'm doing my fellowship at Mount Sinai West in maternal fetal medicine. And I'm so lucky to have here also wonderful colleagues, wonderful mentors, and to be learning so much. That's incredible. So you did four years of OBGYN residency after you graduated four years of medical school, after you graduated with a bachelor's in some kind of science major, correct? Yes. So again, that was a four-year uh, bachelor's degree, a four-year medical school training then you became a doctor, right? Because before we become a resident, you have to be a doctor. You're officially a doctor. You're out of medical school, but you're learning in whichever area of a doctor that you're going to become. So then you do four years of OBGYN residency. And at the end of the four years, you are qualified to practice as a general OBGYN, or like you said, an academic OBGYN, which I want to touch on in a minute. And then after that, you chose to further specialize in high risk conditions and you chose to become a fellow, do a fellowship, which is a higher level of a resident. You're not a resident anymore. However, you need to train for a certain amount of years. And is it three years that you're doing your MFM fellowship for? Yes. So it's it's three years. Um, it's a little bit of like you exactly you said, uh, a weird, like awkward time, almost like I would say like the preteen stage you're like because in some ways you are a doctor but you know in some ways I think it's I get the benefits of both so I'm in a formal learning environment and I'm so blessed to be learning so much and to really be on this lifelong learning course um, but I'm also able to you know when I take um, general call to serve as the attending and hone those skills and take them to the next level with my teaching of the residents, um, taking them through um, deliveries, C-sections, talking about general labor, things that you're expected to um, have clinical competence in when you graduate um, residency. So to kind of take that to the next level and also my learning in high-risk obstetrics to the next level. I think that's really, really cool. I've worked in several different hospitals, some academic, some not academic. And I've come to find that 
even though people may sometimes get annoyed that it's a learning hospital and they have more people involved in their care and some people are uncomfortable with medical students and I have to explain to them that residents are not medical students even though we work alongside medical students too. But I do find that typically the practice is a lot more up to date because of the very nature of the environment you have students, like you said, and they're learning, and that makes you have to continue to learn. And any work in medicine, you have to be a lifelong learner because medicine is always changing. Technology is always being used more and more to treat more complex things. So would you agree on that, that there's actually a certain benefit because you have extra pairs of eyes on you and they're really looking, they're just another mind, someone someone else to bounce things off of someone's condition? I, I could not agree more. I think, you know, it's a whole team experience. One of our doctors at LIJ um, used to tell us, he always would kind of hint, uh, you know, I think Patients have very specific expectations coming in of what you see on TV, what you read uh, now with social media. You mean your uh, water like- doesn't just break and then you're screaming <laughs> in the hospital pushing the baby out? <laughs> exactly. And he would say, you know, like there are a lot of people, there are student nurses, there are student doctors, there are residents, there, there are many different learners and they're all there to help. And you know, you can express what you're comfortable and not comfortable with, but at the same time, no one's trying to harm you. And, you know, especially if God forbid something does happen, there will be a lot of people, whether you like it or not, because it's for your own safety. And I think if you didn't know that, you know, you're kind of like, you're there, you're having a baby. Many people are very private. It's a private moment. And all of a sudden there's 15,000 people in your room and you're like, what's going on? Why are 8,000 people checking me? They aren't my doctor. Like, why are people watching me push a baby out of my vagina? I can feel very intrusive I, and we're not trying to be but I think you know communicating expectations and also what happens and why it's to your benefit is really important I also I do agree with you I think you know some of our new newer practices I would say you know 25 um, percent of women undergo inductions now and we have like new studies that show that if you use two agents at the same time it, it takes a shorter time to be induced if you use like a foley balloon along with pitocin i love me some foley and low dose pit it's awesome <laughs> yeah and it, so you know if, if if you don't read that like you're not going to get that benefit and maybe you're in labor for longer or what medicine is best for slime for a hemorrhage or to prevent a hemorrhage or you know now if we give certain other antibiotics if someone has had their water broken for a while and has a c-section in terms of decreasing risks of infection so i think you know we're always evaluating best practices and it's always nice to have fresh new eyes so i think it can only benefit people i think sometimes the trouble happens when it's not communicated that it's in best interest and it can feel very invasive. And even as a resident, you know, I think one of the things I was always taught was you always introduce yourself to the patient before the patient starts pushing. Like you don't walk into a room and I'm sure from your perspective also as a labor and delivery nurse, um, you know, nobody likes it when someone just runs in the room and like doesn't introduce themselves in a very vulnerable moment. So I think we're, we take care of patients. It's also important to be respectful and to be their advocates. So about having those realistic expectations, I do encourage women to have the conversations with their provider during their prenatal care way before so that they can figure out how does the hospital work. It's a little touchy because Technically, you know, you could refuse anything you want, but when you sign a consent form in a hospital that you're at, you're consenting to having 
residents as part of your medical care. Um, but I do think that moderation is key. Like you said, really making a, a patient feel like they're human and introducing yourself and hopefully meeting them before they're actually in that pushing stage so that you can actually build some sort of rapport. For example, I work in two hospitals. One of the hospitals is an academic hospital and um, it's a smaller residency program. So it, we have the ability to do that, but the residents will come every change of shift and they'll come in and they'll introduce themselves and just kind of get to know the patient. They just like go from room to room to room, just saying hi every morning and every evening. Also, there is something to not having a million people, if not necessary, in there. I'll give you an example. When I was having my third baby, I was doing an unmedicated birth. And um, when I got to the hospital, I was like really in the throes of active labor. And I was in a really, really tiny little triage room. This was about 10 years ago. My husband is a nurse as well. So it, we came in and it was a really quiet day. There were no other babies, no other people in labor at that moment. And there were six nursing students, poor things. They wanted to see something. And I was the one that came in and it was like the perfect, the perfect patient for a student to see. I come in an active labor. They're going to see a birth in two or three hours. So they'll go from start to finish and see the whole thing. And it was like perfect. So... The nurse that was taking care of me, she pulled in all six of the students into the triage, the teensy, tiny little triage room where already there wasn't enough room for me, myself, her and my husband. And at that point, I got really angry and I said, you need to leave. So the nurse, she actually knew my husband um, from before and he because he's a nurse too and just the nursing world is small. So she got really angry at him and like me with my contractions and everything. And she's like, you of all people should know. I wasn't a nurse at the time. You of all people should know. You're a nurse yourself. This is how you had to learn. And you know what he said to her? He said, Yes, they're learning. They're learning that when someone is in active labor, she needs her privacy and you don't stick six students into a tiny little room to watch her. You give her the dignity and you allow her to labor in peace. And if they would have said, oh, can we have one student stay in the room? I would have said yes, but to, without any permission, just bring in six students all to just watch me like an animal in labor, that was really felt to me not respectful. So unfortunately, they all lost out because it set just a bad vibe to the whole thing. So I do think that it's it's nice to have that kind of like moderation. Oh, of course. I think I think you really hit like the nail on the head on like some of those really good points. Not having like 15 learners and having one person and introducing themselves and asking permission, I think is so key. And also sometimes it's the way they get introduced. The way I introduced to the medical students, I'm like, this is so-and-so part of our team. And I think sometimes to bring that in like one at a time, you're absolutely right. The delivery and like the way it's done is so important to empower the patient, to give that patient the autonomy and make them feel like they are cared for and being advocated for um, and give them the dignity. We have so many populations who unfortunately have been taken advantage of by the medical system, whether it's in America, Nazi Germany, so many different populations have been marginalized and it's very scary for them to have students or to feel like guinea pigs. Um, And so I think, you know, it's very important to sensitively broach this with patients. So I think you're absolutely right. 
that's actually a great point too. The sociocultural backgrounds of certain people will definitely affect how they feel about that. And that is a really interesting point to consider. So after you finished your OBGYN residency, now that you're a maternal fetal medicine fellow, how much longer do you have to go until you're done with, with that fellowship? So I'm in my first year of fellowship. And after this, I have two more years. And then you'll be done or maybe go to Colorado and learn how to. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think so. (laughs) No more fellowships. You know, you're always learning. um, But at some point, like I I really enjoy also like just being a doctor. You seem to be researching some really cool, incredible technology I read in your bio. And I do want everyone to know that research is not only for scientists. It's actually very much for doctors and like someone who's a maternal fetal medicine doctor, you are at the pinnacle of cutting edge research. And you're a scientist. I think that sometimes people don't realize that clinical doctors treating patients are not just in the hospital and in the office. They're actually doing science. They're actually uh, conducting research. Can you tell us a little bit about the interesting research that you're doing? You had mentioned previously in this episode about the amazing um, technology of ultrasound, which I would love to hear, especially being the fact that we've come a very long way in the past 20, 30 years in ultrasound technology. And I think it's important for people to know that, especially for the Jewish population that sometimes has reservations about doing certain prenatal testing, um, because the, the prenatal testing years back, decades back, was not as accurate. And that did cause, I think, going back to the sociocultural um, aspect, that that did cause some alarm where people got diagnoses that were incorrect, um, etc. I'd love to hear about the ultrasound. One of the biggest parts of our job um, as high-risk doctors is ultrasound. So this, this really spans all pathways. So there are certain ultrasounds that are done every pregnancy, whether your pregnancy is considered low risk or high risk. So one of that is at the anatomy scan. So that's the scan that you have at about 20 weeks where you look at every part of the body, the water around the baby and the placenta, and you kind of make sure everything looks okay, everything's where it's supposed to be, you know, it expands from having four extremities to also the heart being on the correct side of the body of the baby. Um, So, you know, depending on where you are, sometimes a high-risk doctor may do the scan because of all the training they have, but if they're not doing it and an ultrasonographer is doing it, then usually it's supervised by a high-risk doctor who reads the scan and looks at every picture and makes sure things are where they're supposed to be. That's, I guess, how we interact with every woman regardless in terms of their pregnancy. You know, I I think in the Jewish community, we do sometimes have a lot of reservations about getting certain tests done, whether they're genetic or ultrasound tests, Um, you know, but I think it's important. Sometimes the knowledge, you know, helps take better care of your baby. So if God forbid there's some sort of like you had mentioned, like congenital heart defect or something else we see that looks a little bit unusual that may require special care, whether that's delivering in a special hospital that has the special um, pediatric doctors to help or certain follow-ups or special treatments, you know, to get the best care for your baby. An ultrasound is good. Certain other tests are always, you know, you can talk to your doctor about whether if it won't change your management, maybe you don't have to get, but definitely I always encourage everybody to get the ultrasounds in order to get the best care for their baby. See if there's twins. No, no, no joke. I had a patient that for religious beliefs did not do ultrasounds and found out at 36 weeks because her 
uh, baby was breech found out that she was having twins because it was either the um, choice between having a cesarean or doing a version. (laughs) So she came for her version and surprise, (laughs) there's two in there. (laughs) That is crazy. But even, you know, even the first trimester prenatal testing that's done with ultrasound, I just think that it's important to know that it's so much more accurate today than it was decades ago. And it's not ever a definitive diagnosis. Um, it just yes. gives us some more information, which we can use to come to the bigger picture. It's just more data so that we can put, you know, plug into a formula to give us a more accurate um, result. Some people say they get so scared, you know, they just scared her that her child was going to, her baby was going to have Down syndrome and the baby came out and didn't have Down syndrome. So now they're so jaded by all testing. And then I explained to them, well, it's not that they, nobody can tell you 100% unless they actually did an amniocentesis. If they took some cells from your baby, it, nothing is diagnostic. They can just give you your chances of having a baby with Down syndrome. And if they see certain markers that create a high a chance for it, then they're going to tell you that there's a high chance. They're not going to say for sure that your baby has Down syndrome, but the more information they have, the more accurate this chance will be so someone can better prepare. Um, can you tell us a little bit about like what's the what's the latest research that you're doing right now with ultrasound technology? So I'm so happy you brought that up. So I am I love prenatal genetics. And I think, you know, like you said, one of the hardest things in medicine is communicating to your patients the difference between a screening and a diagnostic test. Um, so, you know, now we have this cool new thing that's kind of a cell-free DNA, which has kind of been around for a number of years um, and you know it was validated in high-risk women so it was approved for high-risk women and in October 2020 the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists there was this big study that came out where they basically said that it's also a good test for women who are low risk and what this test does is it has a it has very good predictive values and very good sensitivity but it, again it's a screening test but it, it's very it has very good sensitivity for down syndrome for two conditions that can be um, very life-threatening for babies other trisomies or can tell you about sex chromosome abnormalities those are kind of the main things so a lot some people like because it tells them the sex of their baby but you know this is a very like yes or no, like are you a high risk for these specific conditions where historically what we did is something called a first trimester screen, which is an ultrasound that looks at the back of the baby's neck and measures it, and two other tests in the first trimester that measure different blood tests of different hormone levels of the placenta. Um, And you know, while this tells us kind of, it's a little bit less sensitive, it also tells us about other things that can happen in pregnancy. You know, younger women are less likely to have a baby affected with a genetic condition like Down syndrome, but are more likely to have a fetal structure that could be abnormal. And sometimes these tests are better at predicting that. And it's low invasive, right? It's just taking some blood. Yes. And so, you know, for some people that may be a better option and there's no really definitive in the literature right now, ever since ACOG um, put out this recommendation, no one, like it's very hard for doctors to counsel patients on what, which test they should get. And we actually, we did a study about what gets missed when you have a normal cell-free DNA, that's that test we talked about, but your first trimester screen is abnormal. And we found that about a third of the women actually had either a maternal or fetal complication in their pregnancy. So to me, that was very interesting and exciting, you know. Um, so one third of the women who did what? The women who had a normal cell-free DNA 
but an abnormal first trimester screen, about a third of these women actually had some sort of um, complication in their pregnancy, either with their baby or the mother, whether it was hypertension of pregnancy or a marginal cord or the placenta being um, implanted a little bit unusually, or maybe like a structural anomaly in the fetus. So it's still a good test to have. And maybe, you know, because everyone's very much like, do one or the other, don't do both, but maybe it is a good idea to do both. Um, Interesting. And jury's is it, still out on that. Yeah, and would someone be denied to do both? Like, would insurance say you get a choice of one or the other? Um, you know, right now, right now, and it's uh, one of this is I think one of the hard things about the medical system is a lot of times doctors, you know, it's, the the costs are not very transparent even to doctors. Um, so right now. I think, in a, in, except for a research setting, you know, insurance covers one or the other, but, you know, maybe with research like this, and if it's replicated in other places, this, this may be something that would be covered. Thank you so much for sharing all of this amazing information. I want to leave our audience off with this interesting thought, and um, I'm curious to hear what your opinion is on this. Because you're someone who is a very respectful doctor. I can tell just from talking to you, you really um, can see beyond just the clinical parts of someone, someone's pregnancy and labor and postpartum period. You really look at the whole human experience. And sometimes I'll see this conflict that patients who are high risk have where they went into pregnancy hoping for a regular uncomplicated pregnancy. Maybe it was a spontaneously conceived pregnancy, or maybe they use some kind of assistive reproductive technology to help them get pregnant. And they're hoping for a normal pregnancy. They have no other signs that it may not be normal, or maybe they do have signs that it may just have extra complications in it. But then they want to have kind of like an intervention-free labor and birth. Um, I'm, I'm a labor and delivery nurse, so I do see really that labor and delivery piece of it. I don't work in the office, so I don't see that as much as I see the labor and delivery piece of it. And the hard thing is, is that oftentimes they will need certain interventions during their labor and birth that are going to um, preclude them from having their desires, original desires met. Like if they need an induction because it's safer for the baby to be out before the baby decides to come, or um, if they need to be on certain medications that will necessitate them being on bed rest, then that can be really upsetting. But I, I think that when patients who have certain complications understand beforehand, have this realistic expectation that, yes, normally birth pregnancy is supposed to be a normal, regular physiological event. But when it's not, we do need the medical intervention. And especially if someone, for example, you know, had some fertility help, um, it didn't start off natural or uncomplicated or risk-free to begin with. So in terms of labor and birth, they may also not be able to have that. They may also need additional interventions if they needed interventions to help them get pregnant or they needed interventions during their pregnancy because there was some health concern. Then um, I think that when someone has a little bit of that understanding that it's not that 
we're over-medicalizing things necessarily, but more so where sometimes pregnancy, labor, and birth does necessitate medical interventions. We're very lucky today that we have so much technology where women used to die in the past or not be able to have children or have so many children that they would die from a hemorrhage um, or infection. And we have the antibiotic treatments today and we have different induction agents, um, et cetera. So what do you what do you just think about this whole entire concept? You know, it's so hard. And I really I think there's, you know, especially with the age of social. And I always talk about social media because I feel like that's where we see a lot of our expectations of what pregnancy is. And no one talks I think about how hard it is, how hard to become pregnant, how hard it is to stay pregnant, and what happens when certain conditions happen. Um, so I, I don't think people come in with an expectation of what can kind of happen. And I think there's, in a way, sometimes a sense of grief of, like, not having this normal, worry-free, enjoyable pregnancy, um, which I definitely empathize with. Um, and, you know, it, it's hard. I feel like, you know, you, you touched upon induction, which I think is the hardest part about having intervention free because a lot of the times if patients have any sort of high risk condition, there is a certain point in the pregnancy where the baby is safer delivered than the staying pregnant. So, you know, you kind of have to induce labor. So I, I feel like, you know, that that is kind of hard. But I think sitting down, I think with patients and kind of setting expectations and, you know, really discussing like what that means and what are, what is the, what are the things they can have that they still want? So like, not, and again, of course, everything, like I always tell patients and, you know, everything I can recommend something I want to treat you the way I would treat my sister, my friend at the end of the day. Yes, this is not Russia. You can make your own decisions. I'm just uh, like, but it would, I would not be a good doctor if I didn't tell you this is recommended and this is the safest thing. But at the end of the day, we don't force people to do stuff. That's not how we do medicine here, but I'm not going to, I, if something is unequivocally safer, I have to give that recommendation. You could choose not to follow it. But I think that's figuring out how to how to meet the patient halfway and figuring out like how to kind of see each other's side and what could make that better. So a lot of people maybe had a normal pregnancy and were seeing a midwife and then they got diabetes and really didn't want to be induced um, for many reasons. And so I'll sit down and talk to them because they'll come to a high-risk clinic, you know, for consultation and maybe they're on insulin and you know and then I'll talk to them and why don't they want to be induced sometimes you I think you have to ask why and sometimes they'll just hear you know I'm scared I'm going to have a c-section and so you know maybe I'll say I'll, I'll like pull up things you know in women like yourself it's actually safer and actually decreases the risk of c-section and for like the one in a million like people will be like okay great you see I'm so happy and I'm done and then other people will be I don't want this long you know, I don't want to be there for that long. But this and this happened. I had an infection last time. I really wanted to try vaginal birth. And I know it's harder, like, to try that with an induction. The other day, I had a woman who had a placenta previa. And, you know, anytime someone has a diagnosis, it's not the first thing I do, because obviously like, there's a lot of, like, it's very overwhelming. But one of the things I think it's important is to, like, put the idea of the head of, like, how the diagnosis affects either the mode of delivery. So maybe this means you need to have a certain type of delivery or um, the timing of delivery. Because I think it's important to talk about that because it does affect. So, you know, the patient 
had a placenta preview her anatomy scan, and then again, she had a placenta preview again at 32 weeks, which means it's extremely unlikely to go away. And what this means is the placenta is over the cervix for our audience, and it is not safe to labor. You need to have a scheduled C-section at 37 weeks. You can you can have a massive hemorrhage. There's no way the baby can come through. The placenta is blocking the cervical opening. So that is like... If I have to think of one diagnosis that is a sure, straight, do not pass go, do not collect $200, go to the operating room and have a cesarean birth, it is a placenta previa. Yeah, and, you know, I was talking to her, I was like, you know, like, because of this, you know, you're um, you're going to need a C-section at 37 weeks, you know, for both you and your baby's safety. And she started crying, and I guess she hadn't realized that, or nobody had talked to her about that, and, like, it was kind of hard and she really didn't want that. Of course, nobody wants a major operation if they don't have one, but we talked about like why it was so important. And I said, listen, here are some of the pros. You haven't had bleeding yet. A lot of you have bleeding at this time, like you're doing really well. You're gonna have a scheduled delivery and it's gonna be in a controlled environment. You live close to the hospital. Sometimes you have to think of like the good things. And sometimes some people are like, you know, now I have a scheduled delivery. I know when it's coming. Sometimes that's kind of nice. And someone, and someone else is like, I just wanted to do skin to skin. And I was like, well, you can see your baby being born in the operating room. We pull down and we have a see-through curtain. You can put the baby on your chest and you can still do skin to skin. Um, you know, sometimes those those little things help. It is hard and it's hard to lose that autonomy, I think. Um, it's really hard not to be able to have the agency to really make that decision. And I empathize, it's, it's not like a, an easy conversation to have and it's not easy to be that patient. Um, but I think you just have to show that you're, you're there, you're there to listen, you're there to care, um, and what can make this better for you. And sometimes it's just little things that kind of make it a little bit better. Yeah. Um, so I think that's where compassion comes in. It's so true. Just the little, little things, just the sitting there listening and explaining. I find that for myself as well. Like for a C-section, some people are just so scared and they think it's the end of the world. But really, truly, if you need it, it is so safe and the recovery can be beautiful and wonderful. And even just them understanding why they need some intervention brings back that autonomy. They'll choose the same thing. They'll have the same thing one way or another. But just that little bit of information will make all all the difference in their experience. Oh, absolutely. Thank you so much, Dr. Tirza, for joining us. I hope that we can have you back to hear more about your research as you develop it. It'll be interesting to hear what, what the outcome is to something like that. Well, thank you so much. It's so lovely to be here, and it's so lovely to talk to you. Um, this is so wonderful. Thanks for tuning into the Happy Birthway Podcast. Head over to Yolwedit Academy on Instagram to continue the conversation. You'll find the link in the episode show notes, as well as links to any additional resources, products, and services mentioned here. If you love listening to this show, you can help it grow by sharing it with your friends and rating and reviewing it. To stay in the loop when new episodes are released, make sure to subscribe. Remember that your health needs are unique and require individualized medical advice. The podcast is not a replacement, and some of the information may not be appropriate for your specific circumstances. My mission is to educate you so that you can confidently collaborate with your healthcare team. I believe that a healthy mom and healthy baby are simply not enough. We also need a happy mom with an empowering birth experience.